Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. The article starts with this quote. The woman cannot believe it. She is in the same elevator with Rudolph Giuliani. Oh, this is a thrill. This is not someone in a MAGA hat at CPAC last year. It is a random New Yorker in the year 1985. 1985 was the year that Rudolph Giuliani made a name for himself. It was the year that Giuliani pioneered the same prosecutorial tactics that now very much look like they could be his downfall. But let me back up just a little bit. This is Carmine the Cigar Galante. He was allegedly the boss of one of New York's most powerful mafia families. And in the late 70s, Carmine the Cigar flew a little too close to the sun. He was shot at point-blank range at an Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. Allegedly, the motivation of his assassins was that Galante had decided that he should be the head mob boss. But the other mob bosses did not agree. A guy named Anthony Indelicato, also known as Whack Whack, was tied to the crime. Whack Whack's palm print was discovered in the murder's getaway car, but Mr. Indelicato, Whack Whack, was almost definitely not the person who decided the fate of Carmine the Cigar. Whack Whack may have been part of the group that pulled the trigger, but he would not have made a decision that big. Mr. Indelicato was what is referred to in the mafia as a capo, a middle-ranking member of a mafia family. And the young U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, didn't want to just go after the capos. As he later told Time Magazine, the old practice of locking up a capo or two just helped speed the secession along. Instead, Mr. Giuliani wanted to strike all levels of the mob family, saying it was not an unrealistic goal to crush them. So Giuliani went for the people at the top. The indictment of the National Commission of Organized Crime. According to the FBI, this nine-member ruling body is co-chaired by the men who are the bosses of New York's five organized crime families. The Genovese family, headed by Fat Tony Salerno. The Gambino family, headed by Big Paul Castellano. Lucchese family, ruled by Tony Dux Corallo. The Colombo family, run by Jerry Langella. And the Bonanno family, headed by Phil Ristelli. The case that made then-U.S. Attorney Rudy Giuliani a national figure wasn't about any one criminal or any one crime. It was about how all of these crimes, drug deals and extortion, even murder, how all of that was ultimately controlled by the people at the top in the form of a criminal enterprise. In this case, a ruling body with a mob boss from every family, a ruling, a ruling body called the Commission. They are said to run the most powerful crime families in New York, in fact, in the nation. And according to the government, they make up the commission, the ruling body of a potent criminal enterprise dealing in drugs and extortion, loan sharking, labor racketeering, and murder. The mafia leaders were rounded up in an overnight sweep, and today, U.S. Attorney Rudolph Giuliani announced the indictments. This is a great day for law enforcement, but this is a bad day, probably the worst, for the mafia. The commission had existed in New York for more than 50 years at that point without anyone being able to touch it. What gave Giuliani the ability to go after the commission itself, rather than just the commission's foot soldiers like Whack Whack, was Giuliani's pioneering use of a relatively new law, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act of 1970. You might know it more as RICO. Before 1970, prosecutors were limited to seeking indictments for specific acts, such as the commission of a crime or to finding witnesses who would testify about a criminal conspiracy. RICO changed that. 
If you could prove that there was an enterprise or an organized group of some kind conspiring together to commit multiple crimes, then you could charge for that conspiracy. It was back in 1983, I think, Ron, when uh, Ron came to visit me to talk about putting together a uh, RICO case. At that point, uh, we all thought that there was a possibility of putting together a case on the commission of the mafia, but it was on the drawing boards at the time. And there were an awful lot of people, including people within law enforcement, that thought that it was totally unrealistic, ridiculous, could not be done. Rudy Giuliani did it. The top bosses in New York's most powerful mafias were given 100-year prison sentences. And the case made Giuliani famous, and he used that fame to ultimately run for mayor of New York and, well, you know the rest of the story. But now a version of that same law, Georgia's RICO statute, a version of that law could be Rudy Giuliani's downfall. Of all the indictments former President Trump faces, one of the things that makes yesterday's unique is how many other defendants there are. Because it is a RICO case, Trump was indicted along with 18 other co-defendants, 19 people, 19, all charged with being part of a criminal enterprise, just like how Giuliani charged the commission in the 1980s. And last night, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis made it clear that she intends to try this whole criminal enterprise together. Do I intend to try the 19 defendants in this indictment together? Yes. Now, we have seen plenty of high-profile cases against individual defendants play out in court over the past few years. The trial against Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, for example. We know how those trials work. But what about a case against 19 people? What about a RICO case? How will this all work? And now that all 19 of these individuals are facing serious jail time, how soon until someone in this case flips? Because make no mistake, as much as Trump is surrounded by co-conspirators here in both the federal case and in the Georgia case. Even someone like Rudy Giuliani is ultimately just a capo in this criminal enterprise. The big boss, the end game here, is Donald J. Trump. And the question tonight is, does the RICO law that Rudy Giuliani built his career on, does that ultimately ensnare Donald J. Trump? Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, and Laura Jarrett, senior correspondent, senior legal correspondent for NBC News. Laura and Joyce, great to have you both with me tonight. Laura, let me start with you in terms of the many people named in this indictment down in Fulton County. I want to start with the news we have about Mark Meadows, because Mark Meadows today is filing for a change of venue. He's filed with the Northern District of Georgia to move Fonnie Willis's case against him to federal court. Do you think such a move is likely? Uh, Whether or not it will be successful will be up to the judge. Let me just say it's not frivolous. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not crazy. Whether or not he'll win, we have to see. But the argument is that what he's being charged with this new indictment has to do with things, actions that he took while he was chief of staff. And the removal statute says if you have a coverable federal uh, argument there, you get to remove it. Now, if the charge was that Mark Meadows allegedly robbed a bank, you would say that's crazy. That has nothing to do with him being chief of staff. Right. Arranging phone calls, putting pressure on state officials. He's saying that those are not per se criminal. 
Of course, prosecutors would disagree with him. Solicitate, uh, soliciting someone to violate their oath of office, they would say that is criminal. Uh, but again, it'll be up to the judge. But I, I think it's this is going to be a closer one than perhaps someone else like Rudy Giuliani might. Be. Well, right. Okay. And we're going to talk about Giuliani in a second, Joyce. Uh, to, to Laura's point, not so much about, we'll talk about the merits of arguing that this is not a, the criminal uh, behavior on the part of Mark Meadows. But, but moving this case to federal court has, I guess, the advantage of a different and presumably more sympathetic jury pool. How meaningful do you think that that will be for someone like Mark Meadows? So I think sometimes we get too comfortable talking about juries as as though they are uh, voting pools, right? We think about juries. How does that county vote? In my experience as a prosecutor, people's political beliefs really don't impact their jury service. Judges do a great job of telling them that they have to decide cases based on the evidence and the law that they're instructed on and that they hear in the courtroom, and that they need to leave at the door any biases that they might have, including their political affiliation. You know, we know juries are really good at doing that. So while Meadows and some of the other defendants, Trump, may perceive some advantage in moving into federal court where the jury pool exceeds Fulton County, it goes up into Georgia's northern counties, On the east, it touches Alabama, so some very conservative parts of the state. You know, they may perceive an advantage. In reality, there may not really be a big one there. But even if there isn't an advantage, I think Joyce would agree with me that what this shows is the opportunity for delay. This indictment hasn't even been baked for 24 hours, and already they have a removal motion going, and other defendants might do that. And so I think it just shows you how fraught this is going to be to do with 19, 19 different people. defendants. There's a motion practice is going to go on for months. The idea that this is six months in the making is just not realistic. Yeah, I mean, uh, Joyce, I should mention that Rudy Giuliani, who we spent some time talking about at the start of this program, is also suggesting this should be moved to federal court. I mean, is it is it a foregone conclusion that Trump and everyone else involved in this is going to try and move it to federal court? I mean, to say to set aside the jury piece of it, how meaningfully could that delay this thing? So Laura is dead on the money. Motions practice here will be all about delay, and it won't just be motions to remove. We will see a lot of them. They will be individual. They will have to be decided on their individual merits because these defendants will have different sort of status as to whether or not they can claim that they were a federal official or acting under the orders of a federal official, which is necessary to trigger removal. They'll have different defenses. It'll be a mess. And that'll only be that one type of motion. Some defendants will file motions to dismiss, um, saying that the charges against them simply fail to state a federal crime and should be dismissed on that basis. So six months um, will pass in the blink of an eye, I suspect, while these pretrial motions are litigated. You know, whether this case ends up in federal court is a wide open question. But I think Laura, again, is right to say that it's not frivolous. And although the judge, if the judge reads the paper, whatever the defendant sends to the federal judge is supposed to be a short, plain statement. This one is not. It's rather lengthy and convoluted. The judge may well look at it and say, I can't read this and make a determination that it's okay to just send this back to state court. So we need to have an evidentiary hearing. And that, of course, involves more delay before we even decide 
which courthouse this case will move forward in. Yeah, I do wonder. I mean, when you talk about uh, the various uh, co-defendants having different status, Laura, Meadows' lawyers are making the case that what he did was arranging phone calls, visiting official facilities down at the state in Cobb County. I mean, again, prosecutors are going to take issue with that. But I do wonder, I mean, when we talk about flipping and the fact that sometimes when you have such a large pool of co-defendants, the goal of the prosecutor is to leverage all of these people against each other. Do you see this? Do you see this giant number of co-defendants as a potential pool for flippage to be? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, do we call it flippage? I'm not sure. Of course. These are people who have very different incentive structures than a pers- person, say, like Walt Nada, who sort of has this unusual sort of loyalty relationship with the former president. I don't know that Kanye West's former publicist wants to face five to 20 years in prison. And I'm not saying that she's going to get five to 20 years. She could easily get probation. But do you want to gamble that? She's part of the For somebody charge. that you don't have a relationship with? Uh, this is a serious charge. I just think the incentives in this case are very different. And there are a wide range of people who are not household names who may decide that this is not something they're willing to bear and put their family through. Well, but Joyce, what about the household names? Because uh, we know as tonight, there's reporting that Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani is in dire financial straits. His apartment is up for sale. There are mounting legal bills, which are not going away anytime soon. I mean, is that the kind of leverage prosecutors need to suggest that someone in Trump's inner circle, you'd think that's who prosecutors would want to go for in particular, could be, you know, turned to be a cooperating witness? Tell me how it works, Joyce. Right. So, The people that you want most as your cooperating witnesses are the people who bring you the most value in terms of what they can testify to. And that may or may not be Rudy Giuliani in this situation. But something that's interesting with these folks whose names that we recognize is that many of them are lawyers. They appreciate what it might mean to spend two, three, five, 12 years in a Georgia prison They might be highly motivated to make sure that that's not the outcome that awaits them at the end of this trial. So I think it's not unreasonable to assume that we'll see some of these people file their legal motions, see if they can get cold from the herd, if they have a defense that's unique to them or some other ability to escape this sort of a prosecution. And then if they realize they really are right in Fonnie Willis's sights, they may reach the point where they decide that it's time to go ahead and negotiate a deal to offer up whatever they have. It, it is a calculated risk, by the way, to litigate before you do that, because typically the first people to cooperate get the best deals. But some of these folks may feel like they have potential defenses that they want to run out, let them play out before they decide whether or not to plead guilty and cooperate. Okay, there is a lot more to talk to both of you guys about this. So please, Joyce Bansell or Jared, do not go anywhere. Uh, When we come back, the new revelations about the fake elector scheme that are in Fonnie Willis's indictment and why another shoe may be about to drop. But first... We know who the named and indicted co-conspirators are, but what about the unnamed and unindicted co-conspirators? Who could they be and what they could do to this this same case is coming up next. Stay with us. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, 
a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. So DA Fonnie Willis's sprawling indictment names Donald Trump and 18 other defendants accusing them of racketeering and 40 other crimes in their effort to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. But the indictment also includes 30 unnamed, unindicted co-conspirators whose identities are known only to the grand jury down in Georgia. Now, NBC News is still going through the indictment to figure out who these individuals might be, but certain details in this document point to specific people. For example, while the indictment does not say who unindicted co-conspirator Individual 8 is, it shows that this person, Individual 8, took part in the fake elector scheme and tried to drum up public support for subverting the election with a tweet sent on December 7th calling for voters to ask lawmakers for a special session. And that tweet matches, word for word, a tweet sent by then-Georgia State Senator Burt Jones, also on December 7th. So, unnamed and unindicted, but for how long? Still with me, Joyce Vance and Laura Jarrett. Laura, I mean, we're going to know the names of these 30 unindicted co-conspirators. One would presume relatively soon. It feels like, just from the general sleuthing we've done, that a fair number of them are fake electors who have immunity deals squared away. The rest of them, I mean, are these potential leverage points for the government? Is that why they are unnamed and uh, unindicted as yet? So it depends. Sometimes you see a situation like this because they're still working out a little bit of a deal. And so perhaps the person is going to provide some testimony and in exchange for that, they'll get immunity. Uh, Sometimes the government just doesn't have the evidence to make the case for whatever reason. Maybe they don't have the text or the calls. Sometimes it's just messy, right? And so you list them as an unindicted co-conspirator. We don't know. We do know some of these people have reached you based on our reporting, but some of them it's just not so clear. And so I think we're going to have to wait and see sort of what else comes out on this. But I think it's certainly clear that they have some people cooperating Mm -hmm. and that they want some more and that they've certainly added this large group as a pressure mechanism. Yeah. So Joyce, just 18 other named and indicted co-conspirators, 30 unnamed unindicted co-conspirators. We're talking about a large number of people in involved in this case in one way or other, either directly indicted or floating around indictments, potentially cooperating. What is your assessment about how this case gets to trial? I mean, how practically this seems so unwieldy, so sprawling for the layman, laywoman, layperson. How did how does Bonnie Willis get this done? You know, when Fonnie Willis indicted another RICO case, the Atlanta Educators case, a a cheating scam on uh, grading exams, she actually indicted 35 defendants. 
By the time she got to trial, there were only 12 of them left. And that's this sort of winnowing procedure that you're hinting at, Alex, where some of these folks will decide to plead guilty, maybe without a deal. Others will want a deal and they may plead and cooperate and strengthen her case. But it's likely that by the time that Willis goes to trial, she will no longer have all 19 of these defendants on her hands. RICO cases, any big conspiracy case is messy. You've got, you know, if you've got 10 defendants, you have 10 people making opening statements and cross-examining witnesses and jumping up and saying, you know, Your Honor, I object. So it, it is a little bit different than the normal trial, but it's nothing that a prosecutor and particularly one like Willis who has a number of these RICO cases under her belt, isn't well-equipped to handle. Joyce, let me just ask a follow-up on that. In terms of the the penalties these these folks are actually facing, there's a lot of back and forth about whether RICO charges in Georgia have a mandatory five-year sentence or whether a convicted person can serve probation. Um, Also, whether it's five years in jail or a fine or both. I mean, how real is the legal peril here? Right. So anyone who's confused by Georgia's statutory scheme is doing a really good job of reading the law because it, in fact, is very confusing. The statute, the RICO statute itself, says that people who are convicted should be sentenced to no less than five years in prison. And that's language that we typically associate with a mandatory minimum. However, there's another provision of Georgia law that says that the judge can make a decision in certain kinds of cases that the sentence should be one of probation, that it shouldn't be the full five-year mandatory minimum. And so, again, when Willis indicted the educator case, some of the defendants who were convicted received sentences of two to three years. Others received lower sentences. And then there were folks on the high end who received sentences well beyond five years, which suggests that for the most culpable defendants in a successful RICO prosecution, there is a lot of peril. That is a lot of time to spend in a Georgia prison. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that we are talking about Donald Trump when we say the people who are most involved in this. Uh, Laura, what happens as the Fonnie Willis case and the Jack Smith case? intersect here. Tell me definitively who gets priority. Well, I think there's a fair amount of overlap. And so I think the real question is, what does the former president do over in the next course of days, weeks and months to push her to move this trial up? She has already issued Judge Judge Kutchin has issued something of a warning. And I don't think if he continues to try to put out social media posts that intimidate witnesses, arguably, that she's going to throw him in jail or cite him for contempt. I do think there's a possibility that she decides I'm going to move this trial up, as she warned him she would do, because she's worried about the integrity of the proceedings. And so if he continues to test her, I think we could see this case go before the Georgia case, even though obviously the federal case is complex as well. I think it's a a possibility, even if there are delay attempts, that it could actually go before it. Yeah, well, it is more built for speed, and the judge has suggested speed as a punishment. So it'll be up to him. Yeah. Joyce Vance, Laura Jarrett, thank you both for your wisdom and time and expertise. I appreciate it. We have much more this evening, including the Kanye West connection to Georgia. You are a How a rapper's publicist ended up indicted with Donald Trump. But first, the fake elector investigation is still ongoing across the country. What is happening in Michigan and why you should keep your eyes on the state of Arizona? That's next. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is, is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it? Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. So 84 people in seven states President Biden won in 2020 served as fake electors for Donald Trump. Now, state and federal prosecutors have investigated this fake elector scheme for months now. And last night, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis indicted three of Georgia's fake electors, David Schaefer, Kathy Latham and Sean Still. Combined, these three are facing 26 criminal charges, including forgery, making false statements and violating Georgia's RICO statute. Those Georgia fake electors are now part of a club that includes Michigan's 16 fake electors who were charged by that state's attorney general last month, which begs the question, are we reaching the sort of critical mass that is needed for more states to try these people in earnest? In Arizona, State Attorney General Chris Mays, a Democrat who took office this January, she is currently investigating that state's group of fake electors and other thwarted attempts to flip the vote to Trump. You might remember former Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who, like Brad Raffensperger down in Georgia, defied Trump's pressure to reverse Biden's victory. We asked Attorney General Mays' office for an update on that Arizona investigation, and we received no comment. Joining me now to discuss all this is MSNBC legal analyst, our not-so-secret weapon, Lisa Rubin. Lisa, thanks for being here. This is something we casually talk about at the water cooler, like, when's it going to happen in Arizona? But the parallels between what happened in Arizona and what happened in Georgia in the 2020 election are eerily similar. Uh, How much do you think this Georgia indictment sort of puts the pressure or pushes the ball forward over in Arizona? Yeah, I wouldn't call it pressure, right? Because each state is its own political ecosystem. And one of the key differences here is that Republicans in Arizona still pledge fealty to Donald Trump. And those that didn't, like Rusty Bowers or even Mark Brnovich, who was the state's attorney general, ran for higher office and didn't succeed because he took on Donald Trump. Those people no longer have power in Arizona. Yeah. On the other hand, in Georgia, they did. And so they were unafraid to talk to Fonnie Willis, whether they did so voluntarily or sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, send me a subpoena and I'll come in. Those people had to have been tremendously helpful to her. And in Arizona, it remains to be seen whether Chris Mays will get that kind of cooperation from Republicans who are privy to those conversations yeah, with Donald Trump. Yeah, that's such an important distinction, actually, the way the Georgia Republicans handled this versus the Arizona Republicans. It tells you something about the state of the Republican Party uh, in state by states across the country. What about Nevada? Because Nevada is mentioned in the Jack Smith federal indictment, and yet the, the, the Nevada AG has not brought any charges here and is also a Democrat. 
Right. And the Nevada AG has actually said publicly he doesn't intend to because he doesn't believe the statutes in his state would allow him to bring a case. He actually stood up and supported Nevada state legislators who wanted to make being a fake elector itself a crime in Nevada. But where it came to, you know, sort of more nebulous statutes that could apply to lots of different situations like forgery or solicitation, he, unlike Fonnie Willis, thought that wasn't enough. So he announced in May he would not bring charges. I'll be curious to see whether this indictment causes Aaron Ford, who is the Democrat elected AG in Nevada, to revisit that conversation. Well, you'd think, I mean, and let's talk about Josh Call over in Wisconsin, the Democratic AG. With the sort of opening, I don't know, what we'll call it a Pandora's box. Once you, once one Fulton County DA says, look at what happened in our state, it was a miscarriage of justice, and you're sitting there as a Democrat in your own state, where the same thing basically unfolded, it seems to me that it's incumbent upon these Democrats to 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 do something or have a very good reason as to why they're not. And I wonder if you think that moves the AG in Wisconsin, too. I'm not sure. And Josh Call has sort of been a vault on this, right? We've asked him, others have asked him, do you plan to investigate? And he's basically said, I have been in contact with federal government, and that's all I'm going to say. I do think in Nevada, Jack Smith might have something more up his sleeve, and that's because what happened in Nevada was particularly egregious. The Secretary of State under Nevada law is required to preside over any meeting of the electors. That Secretary of State, a Republican at the time, Barbara Kagafsky, had already signed the Certificate of Ascertainment for the real electors. For Biden. Correct. And the fact that two of Nevada's six electors have received partial immunity, reportedly from Jack Smith, makes me think that Jack Smith is not done with the Nevada story. Even if it never shows up in an indictment against Donald Trump himself, will it show up in future indictments against any of the unindicted co-conspirators or people who have remained to be seen, you know, still in the shadows with respect to the Trump federal indictment in yeah. D.C.? Do you think that that, I mean, so you, you suggest that the, the, the Jack Smith case continues. He's building it out. We're going to see more of this. I mean, what... I think there are a lot of people that say, what is the timetable for that? I mean, how much longer can and should this go on, right? At the states, there's been this kind of hot, not, is it hot potato? Just this passing of the potential indictments from the states to the feds and kind of back again. And at, right. at one point, we're talking about the 2020 election. We have the 2024 election coming up. And I think a lot That's of right. people think, look, there needs to be accountability before 2024 when Donald Trump, if he's running and is not in jail, is almost certainly to say, certain to say, I won the election. And there cannot be the same state level plot to overthrow democracy if, in fact, he loses. Let's take those things apart, right? Because the indictment against Trump, I personally don't think that indictment will become an indictment against other people. When Jack Smith and his team proposed a trial date of January 2nd, you and I can laugh about that and say that's never going to happen. But to me, that indicates they don't intend to supersede or replace that indictment with more charges and more people. I think to the extent that Jack Smith's team continues to investigate, and all signs show that they are, that's going to be a separate charging instrument. They'll proceed on one track against Donald Trump and on other tracks against other people who may become defendants in that investigation in D.C. federal court. Well, everyone has their work cut out for them all over the place in all these states. That's you and me doing. both. Yeah, and us too. <laughs> Lisa Rubin, thank you as always for your time, my friend. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Still ahead tonight, Donald Trump's plans for complete exoneration. That's Those are all his caps, not mine, in the Fulton County Rico case. But first, disgraced rapper Ye. His former publicist was indicted in Fulton County last night alongside former President Trump. 
Why was a former representative of the far-right rapper trying to subvert the will of voters in Atlanta? That is next. The latest Trump indictment centers on some of the real people who were victims of Trump's alleged pressure campaign around the 2020 election. People like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, who served as poll workers in Fulton County. Trump and his allies accused these women of election fraud and subjected them to a public campaign of unyielding harassment. And the racist undercurrent of all that was not subtle. This is Shea Moss testifying to the January 6th committee in June of last year. Were, were a lot of these threats and, and vile comments racist in nature? A lot of them were racist. A lot of them were just hateful, wishing death upon me, um, telling me that, you know, I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. Trump's allies also allegedly tried to coerce Freeman and Moss into confessing to crimes they never committed. Just weeks after the 2020 election, a mysterious white man showed up and began banging on Ms. Freeman's door. Ms. Freeman didn't recognize the man, and so she turned him away and called the police, who then spoke to this man outside her home. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, my name's Steve Lee. Yep. And uh, I'm a pastor, and I'm also working with some folks who are trying to help Ruby out. You may want to let her know that, you know, I've got some pro bono uh, mm -hmm. service for her. The strange man who was offering pro bono services was a man named Stephen Cliffgard Lee. He is one of the 19 people who was indicted last night by D.A. Fonnie Willis. And this is what the indictment says about Mr. Lee. On or between the 15th day of December 2020 and the 4th day of January 2021, Stephen Cliffgard Lee solicited Harrison Floyd, an individual associated with the organization Black Voices for Trump, to assist with his effort to speak to Ruby Freeman. Stephen Cliffgard Lee stated to Harrison Floyd that Ms. Freeman was afraid to talk to Stephen Cliffgard Lee because he was a white man. Apparently, after Ms. Freeman wouldn't talk to him, the white man, Mr. Lee, he called Harrison Floyd the head of Black Voices for Trump. Mr. Floyd then tried to call Ruby Freeman. He tried several times, but he was unsuccessful. So he, in turn, recruited someone else, someone named Trevion Kuti, a black publicist for the Trump-supporting Nazi apologist and artist Kanye West, who now goes by the name Ye. Now, in December of 2021, a spokesperson for Ye said the artist was not associated with Trevion Kuti when all of this went down. But it should be said that Donald Trump has repeatedly used Ye as a supportive black face to bolster his own extreme and incendiary politics. And Ye at the same time that that has happened, has drifted further and further to the right, openly embracing Nazism, anti-Black rhetoric, and Donald Trump. So, on or around January 4th, former Ye publicist Trevian Kuti showed up at Ruby Freeman's door, saying she was sent by a high-profile individual and urging Ms. Freeman to confess to Trump's baseless allegations of voter fraud, or people would come to Ms. Freeman's home in 48 hours and put her in jail. But Ruby Freeman was not having it. She called the police once again, and an officer took Freeman and Kuti to a police precinct where body camera footage captured Kuti seeming to threaten Miss Freeman. 
I cannot say what specifically will take place, Kuti said to Ms. Freeman. I just know that it will disrupt your freedom and the freedom of one or more of your family members. Well, now, Trevian Kuti and Harrison Floyd are among the 19 individuals charged in Fannie Willis's case. And this is the first time we are seeing charges for the people who allegedly directly orchestrated Trump's campaign of harassment against those two black poll workers. And it is the first attempt at justice for the two black women whose lives were upended by Trump's racist conspiracies, his supporters' racist threats, and his lackeys' racist pressure campaigns. Today, Trump signaled just how he plans to respond to this latest indictment, and we're going to have more on that right after the break. Former President Donald Trump was up early this morning to share his reaction to Fulton County's 98-page, 41-count indictment. Large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud, which took place in Georgia, is almost complete and will be presented by me at a major news conference at 11 a.m. on Monday of next week in Bedminster, New Jersey. Based on the results of this conclusive report, all charges should be dropped against me and others. There will be a complete exoneration. If you, like me, are wondering just how conclusive this report will be, it is worth remembering that Mr. Trump has done this before. Last summer, after the January 6th committee released its findings, Trump issued a 12-page report that he claimed offered proof of election cheating. As the Washington Post's Philip Bump put it at the time, the report was something of a greatest hits collection for his longstanding crusade against reality. Peppered with expected pejoratives against the January 6th committee, it is revealing not for what it says about the election, but for what it says about Trump. He demonstrates no ability to discern fact from fiction about the election results, but also shows no interest in trying to draw such a distinction. Joining me now to discuss this is David Pluff, former White House senior advisor under President Obama. David, thanks for being here. You know, what strikes me about the strategy here is, as you know, as we get these indictments, we are given a very, you know, full illustration of the outrageous but very coordinated strategy Trump employed when he was still in the Oval Office. And you contrast that as 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 allegedly and apparently illegal as that was, there were a lot of people involved on it in it. And now you have the president, former president, tweeting out these announcements for press, you know, press conferences at his golf club and these so far clownish reports that he thinks are going to completely exonerate him. And it's such a study in how much Trump has lost the, the support and the the sort of the wisdom, if you will, or at least the strategy of the inner circle that he once had. They're all indicted now, David. And what has that left him with? I mean, I found this this announcement today sh- shockingly embarrassing. Yeah, well, Alex, you know, it's an insult to brain trusts to call Trump's uh, gang, uh, you know, conspirators a brain trust. But but even that group has been splintered. And, you know, Trump has largely been all tactics, no strategy. This, again, is probably not, uh, you know, serving the word tactic well. But I, what's fascinating about this is he treats it all as a game. And, of course, you know, he's now been indicted four times um, just in recent months, uh, a racketeering charge. Uh, no matter the subject, uh, is never a laughing matter. My sense is you can tell by his reaction that he understands that perhaps this is the most serious of all them to date, which is saying something. I would say about the politics, there's no sign, Alex, that this is going to hurt him in the Republican primary. If anything, it'll help him. 
I think the one thing that could change that is if we begin to get more sense that this is hurting them in the general election voters. But even if that doesn't happen before January or February when primaries and caucuses happen, you know, it's hard to believe there's a single voter out there who's more likely to vote for Trump, a swing voter. And where this will probably hurt him the most is the state of Georgia, a battleground Mm. state. Hard to conceive of any scenario where Donald Trump can win the White House if he doesn't get uh, Georgia's 16 electoral votes. So that, to me, is maybe the most uh, from a political standpoint, the most interesting thing to watch is where this happened, where the crimes, alleged crimes occur, where this is going to get a lot of coverage, uh, even if that hurts him a half percent or percent more than hurts him, like in Wisconsin or Arizona, uh, you know, it could be a decisive uh, uh, set of voters in the next election. That's such a good point, especially when you think about the fact that the Michigan AG is bringing charges against the fake electors. There could be action in Arizona. Who knows what happens in Nevada and Wisconsin? Those states really matter if you're trying to win the presidency. Do you think it is incumbent upon Democratic AGs to pursue those fake elector plots in states where they already have where they have not as yet? Well, not based on where the states are, but just based on what happened. I mean, you know, what's sad is there's probably 40 percent of the country, maybe even 45 percent, who thinks a concerted effort to basically circumvent the will of the voters uh, and leave someone in office, as happens in autocratic countries, is okay. <laughs> but those of us who believe that, um, you know, there's nothing more sacred in this country than the peaceful transfer of power have to follow this Uh, wherever it goes. And yeah, I think it's true that this was not the most skillful um, band of traitors uh, in global history. Uh, But but the more we learn, the more we see how coordinated it was. And the thing that should scare us all uh, is if Trump somehow were to win, um, it will be much more skillful next time, because clearly he doesn't think he did anything wrong. Mm. And a lot of the people around him don't think he did anything wrong. So that's why it's so important that he be held to account. And one of the, I think, important things about Georgia is so many other people who were part of this conspiracy also have been indicted. To the Georgia case, I wonder what you make of uh, this Washington Post analysis this morning, effectively saying that the, 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 the case that D.A. Willis has brought is overly broad and that that could ultimately help Trump. This is a quote from that piece. If jurors do eventually balk at the breadth of the charges in Georgia, that could turn public opinion in Trump's favor. This is according to a Republican consultant in Atlanta. I think the overreach probably hurts the credibility of the rest of the cases. Do you do you think there's any merit in that? I don't. And listen, I'm quite Alex. I believe that, you know, our law enforcement officials should pursue wrongdoing kind of uh, irregardless of politics uh, or PR. But no, at the end of the day, uh, we have Trump on tape. We have so many of his allies, including some in the White House, his chief of staff, actively engaged in threatening elected officials and others to overturn the election results. So again, if we think it's all a game and that's now okay in America, that's one thing. But if we believe at the end of the day, um, this was a traitorous, a uh, set of strategies and tactics to hold on to power and basically destroy our constitution, to destroy our democracy, then you have to follow those facts and those leads and that evidence where it leads. Uh, and so I disagree with that uh, very profoundly. It is um, really a stress test for democracy is what this moment feels like. David Pluff, it's always great to hear from you. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. That is our show for this evening. 